Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. What the fines have done and the media interest in the fines is at least generate a a buzz and prominence for data protection regulation and has also brought a spotlight to the infringements by reporting on the fine. But I do think the slog involved in the corrective measures that organisations have to implement and supervising them, which is what the Data Protection Commission does, there's often very little interest in that. The only advice I can think to give is that you have to know what you're about in this job and you have to be about fair and objective regulation. And if you're not about that, you're going to get instrumentalized, pushed around and end up creating chaos. So you really have to keep your eye on the ball. As a regulator, you have to be objective and fair, establish the facts apply the law and reach your conclusions. And it's as simple as that, but I can see how it could be made very complicated. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show. Now, after 10 years as the world's most recognisable face in policing tech giants, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, is stepping down. In this last exclusive interview, she sat down to give us an idea of what she really thinks about some stuff. She explains, for example, why she didn't jump into a megabooks job at a tech company, reveals some regrets she has, and muses upon why us journalists very often got the details wrong on some of the big GDPR stories. Rounding off an extraordinary career, this is how our conversation went. Helen Dixon, I'm delighted to be talking to you today and in what is, I think, and I believe your last interview as Data Protection Commissioner. I'm going to start at the top. Why did you decide it was time for a change? Oh, well, really, it's the legislation under which I was appointed as the Commissioner for Data Protection that decided it was time Mm -hmm. for a change. I'm in my 10th year at the DPC, so finishing out a second five-year term, and I can only serve a maximum of two terms. Mm -hmm. So I'm going a couple of months early, but that's all. And because I'm not retiring and had to line up another job, it's been hard to time it precisely, but... I've come pretty close to serving out the full 10-year term, actually. Mm. Now, you opted for another role in public service in Ireland. Uh, you're going to Comerick uh, That's as right. one of the commissioners. Why did you choose that route in public service and not some big corporate job? 
Well, I'm committed to public service. I believe in public service. I believe I have a lot to contribute. I've a huge amount of experience and skills now in in regulatory matters that um, I can bring to the Comreg role. There's also another very pragmatic reason. I'm bound under uh, standards in public office code, and that code has very strict provisions in relation to the first 12 months after departing from a role like the DPC role. Um, And while there's a process I could have gone through if I did want to join a corporate straight off where my intended employment would be run through something called an outside appointments board and conditions might be attached, I opted to keep things simple because I'm genuinely very interested in this regulatory role at Comreg. Just to finish off that point, I mean, the companies that would have been coming looking for you, the Metas, the Googles, I'm sure they could have offered you multiples of what any public service job in Ireland could offer and be not tempted at all. <laughs> uh, um, no, not, I, 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 I mean, no, no. Yeah, that's interesting. Always open to have a conversation. I've had conversations, but... This, I think, is the right path. Okay. Um, so you'll be one of a few comrade commissioners. I will, one of three. Mm. And you're going to be dealing with, uh, you're moving from big tech really to big telecom. That's right. Big telecom and big post, I suppose, as big well. Post, it's also yeah. the post regulator. So, yeah, it's probably more than telecom and will be more than telecom. It's electronic networks. It's it, There's going to be a big role in terms of the NIS2 directive for Comreg in terms of pan-European supervision of cloud uh, providers in Ireland. So, um, yeah, a more technical role, I suppose, than I have here and a more market regulatory role. Mm. Now, in your near decade in the as DTPC, what were your high points? Oh, there have been loads of high points. There are high points almost every week. But I suppose looking back uh, in terms of where it started and how it started with a very small office in Port Arlington when I was first hired, probably a first big high point was when, uh, ironically, it's when we moved into a serviced office on Harcourt Road. We had a critical mass of staff hired in Dublin, hard fought to hire them, to get the budget to hire them. And we were big enough now to move into a serviced office and Port Arlington staff were able to come and have space there as well. So that's when we really began to knit together as a team. The GDPR was adopted in 2016 around that same time. So we knew the shape of what was to come in terms of our regulatory role. And we were really able to work together and start to prepare for it. But other big high points, I think, have been around the great hires that I've been able to make in terms of some of the very exceptional people. And I won't name names that we hired. Some have been and gone. If you're going to name names, now's the time to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, there are a lot of names and I don't want to leave anyone out. out. Some of them have have been and gone back to private practice, for example, in law, but really left a huge contribution here. And high points, I think, have been when the DPC has really been delivering clarity, clarity to the public, but clarity to regulated entities in terms of how to comply with the law. And I'm thinking in particular of the groundbreaking guidance that we published on children 
and the protection of children's rights. It's been translated with our permission into multiple languages across the EU. I'm thinking also of the extensive work still ongoing that we've done on the issue of data transfers, transatlantic data transfers, the case that I took to the High Court that that resulted in the reference. Huge amount of work went into all of that, but ultimately it delivered something in terms of clarity and moving the dial on in terms of making progress on what has been a very, very difficult issue. So there's some of the high points. Some of the high points. I'm going to come back to the transatlantic stuff in a couple of minutes, but are there any regrets or low points? Oh, there are, there are lots of regrets about things that that I haven't been able to finish or um, haven't been able to do while I was here. W- one of the regrets is definitely, as we sit here in this slightly chilly office today, one of them is that I wasn't able to secure a permanent office for the DPC in Dublin sooner. The DPC will move in without me, uh, I hope, by the end of this year to a new state-of-the-art new build office in Dublin city centre. But it would have greatly facilitated us now that we're a very big organisation of over 230 staff today, had we had that over the last number of years. So that's certainly a regret, but I suppose I'm happy at the end of the day it, it is imminent. Another regret is certainly that I wasn't able to secure a sanction to recruit at, at the level that I wanted to uh, in the organisation. But I have to operate within a system, a public sector system, and in general that system so what has kind served of, me well. What kind of people would that have been? So it would be people with senior management capabilities. It it would have been people that would have been able to provide leadership in certain areas of the organization where I would have been capable of delegating more um, and uh, leaving some of the operational matters uh, to be run. To be very clear, I've, I've excellent senior staff mm. and the staff that report to me are excellent. It's simply... There aren't enough of them. The size of the um, job, the size and, of the work. And the breadth of the team that reports to me has grown wider and wider to 11 direct reports uh, without the ability really to wrap it up, I suppose. And you just weren't sanctioned to do that, was it? No. Okay. No. Okay. But you but you wanted, you were looking for that. Oh, oh I sought it in, in, in budgets and made the case, but... But that's the system, as I say, that yeah. that we operate in. And in general, uh, it's difficult to complain. The DPC has, has grown from 27 yeah. to over 230 and so on. Do you think you always got a fair ride? I mean, it seems to me I've covered this sector and I've covered this office for more than 10 years. And it did seem um, at times, at moments, that half of Europe at times, the flashpoints, a number of flashpoints were, were kind of ganging up on Ireland and on this office. Do, do you, and there was a lot of commentary and we've talked about this before. Um, uh, the, the nar- a lot of narratives, a lot of coverage, which sometimes felt, at, at, you know, at the tough end of things. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you might ask who owes me a fair ride. Um, th- this office has been subject to scrutiny for as long as I've been working in it. And of course, the scrutiny is to a large extent 
reflective of the importance of the role that we have to play. It's interesting, as we've talked about before, that even before this one-stop shop came into being in 2018, which has placed that lead responsibility on Ireland and the DPC, we were already being criticised, even though we didn't have uh, that one-stop shop role. So there certainly has long been a set of political issues with regard to how Ireland is regarded and and the view of data protection regulation without doubt has been mixed up in allegations about the tax regime and so on in Ireland. In answer to your question about fairness, I think it's more an issue of has the criticism been grounded in accurate commentary and facts and, and absolutely it is the case that it has not And it's been very, very difficult at times to deal with what is a deluge and journalist after journalist repeating what another journalist has written, the originating journalist perhaps having taken their information from Twitter, uh, from a tweet uh, that's been issued. So it has certainly been difficult to find a way to adequately convey all of the information that we need to convey in circumstances where nobody's interested in the long version any longer. You were at the centre of all of that. Mm. Did you ever feel the pressure coming down hard on you as a result of that? I felt the pressure to communicate better, to communicate more, to repeat the facts, to try and convey in different terms what what uh, appeared not to have been understood uh, the first time. And and it's difficult to do that, as I said, in terms of the volume uh, that that we've been dealing with. So entirely, I felt the pressure. The the pressure was on me. The pressure is on me. Hmm. Not anymore. (laughs) Um, Now it's just big telecom and big electronic networks that you're going to be dealing with. Um, I asked you a few years ago whether you were prepared to hand out billions in fines should the need require. Um, You you said this office had to be prepared uh, to do that. That has transpired. This office now has handed out some, I think, two and a half, three billion, something like that in fines, mostly to Meta and and its companies, I would say. And some of those were the result of um, upward revisions uh, from um, the EDPB. do you think that we focus overly on the amount of the fine rather than the corrective measures associated with the remedy? Oh, I do. But we, we've talked about this many times before. And I think what the fines have done and the media interest in the fines is at least generate a, a buzz and prominence for data protection regulation and, and has also brought a spotlight to the infringements by reporting on the fine. So in in many ways, they have served their purpose. But I do think the slog involved in the corrective measures that organizations have to implement and supervising them, which is what the Data Protection Commission does, there's often very little interest in that. And that's perhaps where the real gains in terms of protecting individuals lie. I think also there probably is an overemphasis on enforcement and what enforcement can deliver across the board in terms of the GDPR. Enforcement is very important. Enforcement has to happen, is happening, has happened 
85% of the enforcement, if you use fines as a proxy, delivered across the EU, EEA and UK last year in 2023 was delivered by the Irish Data Protection Commission. So to be clear, I'm not um, stepping away from suggesting enforcement's necessary. But what is also necessary, and it becomes clearer every day, is guidance and good quality guidance and case studies and case studies that detail good implementations that are GDPR compliant. When you say reluctant to share information, do you mean discussing issues meaningfully meaningfully within their organizations on email, for example, for fear that it's going to to turn up in in some sort of uh, audit or specifically actually what i was thinking of is the area of adult safeguarding we've we've had approaches from advocacy bodies who have demonstrated in scenarios that they've presented to us complex scenarios where information hasn't been shared between nursing homes or different types of institutions and in fact, the Law Reform Commission is looking at this whole issue of adult safeguarding in Ireland and will shortly publish a report. And there will be a chapter in that that deals with the issues of data and information and appropriate sharing and the lawful basis for it. And there's been significant interaction between the Law Reform Commission and the Data Protection Commission. So that's just one example of where uh, an area appears to slip into a sort of a defensive mode because it it may not seem worth it to individuals to take on the risk of a big GDPR fine. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of those fines, while we've had some very big ones in the last 18 months, 12 months indeed, um, as you leave the office, where do you see the... Uh, uh, are we in the middle of a of a raft of those? There's a lot of big cases left um, mm. being investigated. Um, is that the kind of tone? Can we expect to see these kind of billion dollar fines, billion euro fines from here on in? Well, look, as you said, there are a lot of big cases in the pipeline uh, at the DPC. That's for certain. But equally, there's a lot of litigation before the courts on the cases that have gone. We've collected close to 20 million in fines that have actually gone back to the exchequer already. The rest of the fines, because there have been appeals in the cases, the payment of the fine is automatically stayed. We're going to see, I suspect, the first of our large-scale cases come before the High Court this year in terms of a challenge. So I do think we're going to start uh, seeing where the court sees that issue of where the fine was set, whether there's any revision uh, to that. Um, and we're going to start seeing more litigation in the other member states, albeit the levels of enforcement and large fines are a lot lower there. But that will be instructive, I suppose, in calibrating for the DPC as it moves forward. How many of those big cases do you think will be dealt with this year, not in the courts, but by this office? Oh, in, in terms of, well, it's very hard to say. If I was here, I could give you a good yeah. estimate because I can control my own. Uh, well, I, are, but I, I can't are there speak. any imminent, for example? Oh, there are. There are several imminent. There, there are, in fact, there are two, uh, a case against Yahoo and one against 
a case against Yahoo, and I'll come back to the second one. It's on the tip of my I've tongue. I've actually never heard you. It's Google. Google. It's Google. Okay. I was about to say, Google. I've never heard you uh, <laughs> actually struggle for something or forget for something, because you have this almost kind of photographic memory. And I, I might ask you about that later, but yes, okay, yeah. Yahoo and Google. And Google came into my head, but I, I hesitated. So there are two cases that are in Article 60. There have been objections to them from some concerned supervisory authorities and we're considering the position on them and whether a dispute resolution will need to be triggered. So they're very, very imminent. Before I ask you about the transatlantic thing that I wanted to ask you about, I am just going to pick up on that uh, point I just made. In all of the interviews that I've done with you, I've never seen you use notes. You don't have notes in front of you right now. Um, you've always seemed to have this near photographic recall. Is that something to do with with you? Do you have a photographic memory or something? <laughs> uh, it's usually described as the memory of an elephant. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't know which is more complimentary to me, photographic or, mm. or elephant-like. But yeah, I, I, I am known to have a very, very good memory. Yeah. Quick study. Yeah, I can pick things up very quickly and, and, and remember them. Have you ever tried acting? You're- Oh, I'd be terrible at acting. Good okay, Lord, good no. for your lines. Though. I'd be great at the lines, yeah, but um, mm. delivered like a robot. Mm. Well, <laughs> no. Um, now, as long as I have been covering this sector, um, and you mentioned the transatlantic stuff earlier on, to me, and I've written this many times, there has always seemed to be this judicial, uh, political, legislative uh, merry-go-round on the, the core transatlantic issue, the tension over data privacy, which is essentially that the US and the EU, um, who have different priorities fundamentally, they just keep batting it back. They'll sign an agreement. It'll get challenged in in Europe. It then gets uh, knocked down and then the, the cycle begins again. Do you think we're any closer to a longer lasting understanding or agreement from your viewpoint of having been involved in many of uh, many of, of, of those issues on the core issue? Do you think we're closer uh, the EU and the US to to a long-lasting understanding, something that will stick. So the DPC may yet have to investigate that very issue. It's perfectly possible we'll get a complaint lodged alleging that the new data privacy framework still does not ensure an essentially equivalent level of protection. But without prejudging any inquiry that the DPC would open, I think the answer to your question has to be we must at least be closer. Uh, as to whether any inquiry or ultimately the CJU would find the standard is still not met, we we must be closer because there's a significant change between the Privacy Shield and the Data Privacy Framework. Um, and and I know from, from talking to both sides in the negotiations as between the US and the EU Commission, this was fraught, difficult and, and pushed far. So... Significant changes are, of course, the necessity and proportionality built in now explicitly in terms of any searches that are conducted, and then the court under the executive branch to which EU data subjects can have recourse. It does still seem and and feel, and anyone looking at what the public officials say when they talk about this from, from both sides, the Americans regard their national security as something that is immutable and is not going to be compromised by data privacy uh, in the EU. The Europeans, we here in Europe, believe that our data privacy is a fundamental human right and that it's simply not acceptable to compromise that, even if 
uh, another country like the US feels that they have to for, for national security. Those are very difficult things to reconcile, surely. Oh, they're extremely difficult. And, and hence the scenario you've described, where in my 10 years here, I've been dealing constantly with this issue. But let's not forget, EU member states have national security as well. And uh, it, it isn't uniquely the US. And so I, I think somewhere there has to be a middle ground in, in terms of protection of EU persons' rights to a standard, the same standard they enjoy in the EU, um, and how the US conducts its, its national security. And we'll see if the data privacy framework represents that appropriate balance in due course. Hmm. Are there any elements of the data protection environment that has grown up in the last few years that haven't worked or that have been frustrating? And, and I'm thinking in particular of things like um, website pop-ups uh, informing you of your rights. It seems for uh, for people who visit uh, w- websites, there's endless pop-ups now and, and people largely ignore them and they it might even defeat the purpose of them because then they might ignore other uh, important pop-ups informing them of their rights. So, as you know, the pop-ups are regulated under the e-privacy regulations. Right, yeah. um, so they are pop-ups seeking consent to place information on the terminal device of the user. And there was an intention uh, back in 2016, 2017, in the run-up to the application of the GDPR that the e-privacy regulations in Europe would also be updated and would run from the same point in 2018, and it didn't happen. And ever since, there's been political difficulty in in closing out an agreed text on the e-privacy regulations. So certainly that hasn't worked. There is frustration uh, around those pop-ups, and and the law remains to be revised. Um, I think other areas of, of the GDPR that have proven very difficult uh, are or include the risk-based approach. The GDPR is predicated on this idea that uh, the risks inherent in any specific data processing operations should be assessed and then appropriate measures applied. So if it's not risky processing, uh, then uh, the measures uh, don't need to be too stringent. And that's very difficult for most people, and it's very difficult for professionals in organizations to assess. And so you do see those scenarios where you get people telling you that their bridge club now won't tell them who the other members of the club are anymore because of GDPR and so on. And that's why I made that comment earlier that I do think more guidance and more and more explanation with scenarios of good implementation uh, are needed to kind of bottom out and guide people on the risk-based approach. Now, we're coming to the end of this interview, but it's been a high-pressure job. Outside the job, what do you do to to relax? Do you you have hobbies? Are you into sport? (laughs) Well, I don't listen to podcasts as it happens. Yeah, Yeah, I I, I do sport. Uh, My main sport when I was at university and in my 20s was rowing, and I've actually gotten back into master's rowing. Uh, what again, is master's rowing? Master's rowing is rowing for old people. Oh, um, okay. Thank you for <clears throat> allowing me to explain <laughs> that. So we, we we did a few international regattas last year and we'll race again uh, this year. It's it's a women's rowing crew. 
I'm training in boxing and do a bit of sparring, no actual uh, match boxing. P- proper and, boxing. Um, uh, but proper sparring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I find that's good training for the brain in because it's, you have to be very dynamic and uh, observant uh, when you're boxing. There's a lot going on, clearly. Mm. And then I do, I you know, I run park runs. I do a bit of mountain running. Yeah, sport, sport is kind of my thing. And that's where my friends hang out. Lastly, what advice would you have for your successors? I know that the DPC now is moving to three commissioners. What, what advice would you have for them? Oh, um, I don't think anyone, you know, Billy Hawks was extremely generous and met me for a couple of hours when I was appointed. He he had already departed a few months prior and, you know, everything he said to me was helpful. So there's nothing I, I, I would have expected. I should have been told or could have been told you, you, you have to experience it. But I think the only advice I can think to give is that you have to know what you're about in this job and you have to be about fair and objective regulation. And if you're not about that, you're going to get instrumentalized, pushed around and end up creating chaos. So you really have to keep your eye on the ball, which is that as a regulator, you have to be objective and fair, establish the facts apply the law and reach your conclusions. And it's as simple as that, but I can see how it could be made very complicated. And that was my conversation with Helen Dixon, the outgoing Data Protection Commissioner. Gavin Hennessy was on sound today and JJ Clark produced. I'm Adrian Weckler and you've been listening to The Big Tech Show. We'll talk to you soon. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Pashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vientolam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms.